in order to experience any semblance of success with any level of athlete or client, you need to understand what drives them. And it doesn't, you can write the best workout in the world. If they're not going to do it, it doesn't matter. The best program is the one that somebody will stick to and do consistently. So the psychology part of it, the, the welcome to ultra habits here. We go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutiae and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey guys, it's RJ Singh coming to you from my backyard and we are talking about our next guest on the Ultra Habits podcast who is Dr. Sean Pastouche. Now I came across Sean on the Spartan Up podcast where he was the first person I've ever heard successfully challenge Joe DeSena on the topic of pain in a more sustainable approach. Now, our conversation was great. We touched on that, but it opened up into much bigger things. We talked about the personal training industry, how he wants to professionalize it, how he feels there's a disintegration between the PT world, the medical community, the scientific community, chiros, physios, all of the above. And what he wants to do is integrate all the services in a way that really add value and impact for the client, which ultimately is you and me and everyone else that seeks these services. So the conversation was super dynamic. We hear about his entrepreneurial journey, his philosophy on business, on training, on family. We talk about so many things. He's got great energy, a great story, and I'm sure you guys are going to find a lot of value in it. And like always, the show is for you. And so if there's any feedback, any commentary, good, bad, or ugly, please let us know. Peace. All right, Sean, thanks for joining us on the Ultra Habits podcast. I've been deep diving into your story over the last week, and it is super interesting. And like I said, I've, I've gotten quite, um, I've fallen in love with your raspy voice. It does it for me. So uh, welcome to the show, man. Thank you, RJ. I appreciate it. Look, I want to go straight into it. I want to kick off with this piece that I heard you discussing on the Team Builder podcast around getting fitness coaches, getting coaches to the big boys table. Now, just one of my observations is someone that does the gym and exercises a lot is I meet a, a lot of young coaches that do sports science or they do some form of physical education in university and they have hopes and dreams of making it into the big time, aligning with some professional team and, you know, becoming a professional trainer. And I know a lot of these young people end up disillusioned, right? And I think this piece that um, you discussed on that particular podcast really touches home to how people in the fitness industry need to evolve to get heard and to really add or to be perceived to add value. So I was just hoping we can unpack this piece a bit more about getting coaches to the big boys table. What do you think the inhibitors are within the fitness industry in terms of coaches really being heard and and making impact or being perceived to to make impact? I love this question. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to give one little preface to everything I'm probably going to do on the show with you today. And that's because we're speaking in general terms. I understand that for every rule that we discuss, there's an exception to it. I want people who are listening to understand that we're speaking to the general rule and that they may be the exception. They may be the outlier. Um, And when we talk about the big boys table, the analogy you're describing came from, I was sitting at Thanksgiving and all of the kids were sitting at the kids' table and all the adults were sitting at the adult table. And if you asked the kids what they were doing, they would tell you it was the most important thing in the world. You know, these, these drawings that they were making, this game that they had created, it was important. It meant something. And if you ruined it, their world momentarily would have ended. Meantime, the adults at the adult table we're having our own discussion about what's important in the world. Never for one second thinking that what the kids were doing was actually going to change anything about the world. But we want the kids to be happy. 
we want the kids to love us. We want the kids to feel loved and to be encouraged to grow and be whatever version of themselves they want to be. So we encourage them. I look at the fitness landscape and the strength and performance landscape as it compares to the medical, the, the healthcare landscape, especially in the US. And fitness and strength and performance is effectively the kids' table at the conversation around what healthcare should look like. While we have medical doctors, surgeons, chiropractors, physical therapists sitting at the adults' table. And even amongst that crowd, you would have physical therapists and chiropractors tell you that the elders, right, the orthopedists, the medical doctors, still treat them like their kids, even though they're at the adult table. And then you would have the, the physician assistants saying the medical doctors still treat them like kids. I think that in order for fitness professionals to start to move towards the adult table, they have to come with solutions to problems that everybody at the adult table agrees we have. Instead of coming to the adult table with more problems or coming to the adult table with a complaint, imagine yourself at the adult table at Thanksgiving, a kid comes over and complains about something. You're like, uh, okay, is, is that better now? Great, please go back to your kid's table. If they, if they heard you saying something and they were like, hey, I heard you talking about this big problem and I thought that this might be a valuable solution to it and it worked, like, is it time to bring that kid to the adult table? I know they're six, but it's a pretty smart kid. And I think that that's how the fitness industry needs to start thinking about what we need to do. Do you think that because fitness people tend to be quite extroverted and outgoing and there's a perception issue from the medical community's perspective. Like it will take people like yourself that have a sophisticated approach and not this kind of go hard perception of what a PT person is. Like it's about how you manage that dialogue and how the medical community is approached in the style of that, that particular fitness person, I suppose? Somewhat. I, I think we have to look at it with, with multiple prongs. The first of the prongs is while we have no way to say that every medical professional, every chiropractor, physical therapist, medical doctor, surgeon, there's no way to say all of them are excellent because it's not true there's always gonna be a, a variation of the level of excellence in the profession. What we cannot say about any of them is that it was easy to get into the career. Mm. They all had to decide, this is gonna be hard, mm. this is gonna be expensive, and this is gonna be worth it. What they do when they finish, whole different conversation. The, the, the gap between the education of the least formally educated health professional <laughs> to the most formally educated fitness professional mm -hmm. is three years down to take this textbook, learn this knowledge, take this test. And I'm not talking about your exercise physiologists who graduate school. Typically they don't get into the space of training clients. They get into the space of study. It could be as little as a weekend. And now you're supposed to be able to come present solutions to this table of people who've been looking for best case solutions for years through billions and billions of dollars of research, trial and error. And yeah, there's flaws, but that's, that's crux problem number one. Crux problem number two is that when we get into the, to the fitness conversation, there is no there is no agreement of even what fitness is. And so now we're starting to say, well, is CrossFit better than Zumba? Is Zumba better? My than mom would say no. My mom right. <laughs> right. Look, people, people want to, you know, you look at a company like Jazzercise and everyone's like, Jazzercise, what, what is Jazz? They're a company that's valued at more money than a company like CrossFit, which might be a household name. 
and the and and now neither of them are publicly traded so it's it's all that's all speculation from my perspective based on gross earnings over a long period of time the point i'm making is we can't even agree on what fitness is and how we should achieve it so how are we supposed to come together as a unified group and suggest that we have a solution to play at the table that is healthcare, which is really where everybody wants to be thought of. That's what fitness wants to be thought of. So I think we need to increase the barrier to entry. We need to make what fitness can do more valuable. Mm-hmm. We need to recognize that fitness is in the middle of a, an inflection point in its history and it's cleaving. We're going to commoditized fitness and then towards coached fitness. Commoditized fitness is where you start looking at Apple Fitness, Peloton, Mirror, Tonal, Zumba, right? all of these, CrossFit, name it. You name it. If the solution is one size fits all with little changes here and there within for everybody in the room, it's going to be a commoditized version of fitness because when companies like Apple and Peloton are in the space, you can't even match the experience. So you can't you're not going to provide a better experience for more money. It's going to be very difficult to do. But those companies won't be able to replace the value of the relationship, of the coach, of the integration of data. And so it's going to become a, this is, this is the, the scholarly path and this is the commoditized path. Frankly, it's something I'm looking forward to. Wow. Okay. You really have your views um, yeah, <laughs> yes. really have your view, Sean. And you know what? It sounds to me that you might be the champion for all this because it sounds like you really thought this through. I mean, we we, we had a conversation with, I mean, the, the challenge isn't unique to you or your space. I mean, we had a conversation with Gil Blander from Inside Tracker, and these guys are scientists from MIT that have developed this technology that monitors your blood you, you may know this mm-hmm. like they kind of uh, they, look at your, they look at your biomarkers and even they struggle with doctors because of what you're talking about that perceived gatekeeper mentality and i'm from the world of sales i know when you have a prospective stakeholder that has a gatekeeper mentality you need to augment your approach and you need to figure out how you can then manage that individual or that class of individual and i see what you're saying. It's about to get to that big boy table, the fitness community is going to have to elevate their perceived education, capability, capacity. And that might mean increasing the barrier to entry because nowadays anyone can do it. And Mm -hmm. there's a real challenge there for those of you at the higher end, when the barrier of entry to your space is low, that people come in there and fuck it up for everyone. Excuse the language. Well, so. <laughs> uh, I've heard it before. I've heard the language before. Yeah. Uh, here's the thing, RJ. If, if we go back to the Thanksgiving example, yeah. um, I don't know how big Thanksgiving is in Australia. I imagine uh, I, we do it at my house because I'm American, but. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah. in America, every the family comes together and everybody pretends to love each other. Uh, you know, Unconditionally, we do love each other. It's just a, you know, the political stuff gets swept out. All that kind of stuff doesn't. Yeah. We don't talk about it as much as we can avoid it. So, <laughs> so one thing that you'll notice is no matter where people sit in terms of their cultural uh, beliefs when they come to dinner, all of the adults bring something to put on the dinner table. They bring sweet potatoes, they bring the cranberry, they bring turkey, they bring whatever. They bring something to contribute. The kids don't bring shit. So Except the drama. <laughs> right. Well, well, so so now when you look at it and you're like, okay, well, we should be helping those people too. And fitness professionals, like, we should be helping those people. What you have to understand is that you're asking to sit at the table and take food off of it until you can create an environment in which you bring food to the table too. And a really good example of where I think the fitness industry is missing this is in the, in the area of wearables. So the idea of technology, there's a lot of fear in fitness that technology is going to replace the trainer. 
The MRI did not replace the doctor, but the doctor who refuses to use the MRI because it's a technology no longer exists. So the trainers who are going to resist, resist, resist the advents and, and, and innovations of technology and facilitation from new innovation are going to be left behind. And those trainers right now, those fitness professionals have not had enough time to cleave from the rest of the fitness professionals who will adopt the future and leverage it. So, can, so I, right, can I ask you a question there though? D, yeah. Like all industries, would that tend to be the older individual? Like, cause I mean, I know my no trainer, he's young and he's like all over that shit. He's like, I've got all the, so you're, you're, you're as wholesale. It's a, it's an industry-wide fear, irrespective it's, of age. It's yeah. I mean, you, if all you need to do is go on LinkedIn and I was talking to Muhammad um, Iqbal, who is the founder of Sweatworks, about this. And he and I were discussing how sad it was when all of these franchisors who run a variety of franchises of mm-hmm. fitness chains around the world celebrated when Peloton stock took a dip, when the vaccine was announced. And it was just, it, it was an immediate understanding that there's, there's fear that the pie is small and that we mm-hmm. need to keep our piece of it mm-hmm. instead of the understanding that you now don't have to do that part of somebody's fitness. And if they are still coming to you, knowing that they could buy a Peloton or actually having a Peloton at home, instead of telling them, don't use Peloton, if you can ask them, How often are you using Peloton? What are you doing on it? We don't need to be redundant in your training here. All of a sudden, that's it. Someone else spent billions of dollars to help your client so that Mm -hmm. you didn't have to. Do what you do that they won't. Mm -hmm. You, in business school, we learn about this principle of going up the value chain, right? So that low end will be disrupted by technology, but there's going to be a space to play where the adapters of that technology can integrate it into their solution and then customize the approach with a mixture of man, humans are always gonna require humans and and then integrate that technology and those people that stay in a very commoditized type of offer, they tend to get disrupted by that technology. So if you're not adding value to your client by integrating yourself more into their lives, I would say as a fitness trainer, then you're at risk, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the fitness trainer, to your point, and you know, and, and part of the conversations you and I have had before, you're almost evolving now to a life coach, quasi-life psychologist. <laughs> it's just, well, just kind of amalgamation of stuff, right? Well, and and so. I have, I have the fortunate and unique background of having worked with dozens of professional athletes. And at the time, that's, that's the false peak that you're chasing, right? Like, oh, when I get there, everything will be great. The reality is um, in order to experience any semblance of success with any level of athlete or client, you need to understand what drives them. And it doesn't, you can write the best workout in the world. If they're not going to do it, it doesn't matter. The best program is the one that somebody will stick to and do consistently. So the psychology part of it, the, the life coach part of it becomes understanding, you know, where is this woman in her menstrual cycle? Mm-hmm. For example, where is this, where is this man in, in his day to day? And I, you know, I don't mean to make it that women are menstrual cycles no, no, and men no, are yeah. careers. It's, yeah. Yeah. it was just, What is going on in these people's lives that is going to have an impact on them that I have absolutely no control over, but that I need to account for in the way I communicate with them in what I ask them to do and in how we judge the results of their performance to decide what we do next. You need to be able to do that. And some of it needs to be playing psychologist with yourself, RJ, because as you know, as you climb the ladder in any kind of business hierarchy, things become more expensive and they become more valuable. If they don't become more valuable, they don't justify the price. The problem in fitness in a large part is that the money mindset of many of the people in the space is such that 
asking for money and providing service are out of alignment with one another. And so being able to provide the best possible service becomes an impossibility because they can't afford to. And now we're in this vicious cycle. So we need to play psychologists. We need to get into that mindset and change it. Mm. And we're going to pivot now because although I can talk to you about fitness and your, your knowledge and your, your opinions are, are strong. I think what's even stronger is a lot of your philosophies and on that aren't even related to fitness. So I had a conversation with you a few weeks ago and we talked about business philosophy, life philosophy. And I think uh, you had some interesting views. I know that you had engaged, I think Jesse Itzler, you guys have developed mm-hmm. a relationship. It's loose. I, I, I wouldn't like, we're not, we're not close friends. You're not I'm besties. Just... You don't, you don't, you don't eat at each other's house. But there was something you said that I want you to unpack. Um, Cause I really agree with it. You said, it's important to work on yourself five times more than your business. Now, can you explain how that would actually impact your business more than just focusing on your business? Yeah, totally. There There were two really strong inflection points in my career where this became obvious. The first one, I was working, let's call it 15 hour days. Monday through Friday and like a 12 hour Saturday. And then on Sunday, I just would spend the day hating myself for what I didn't achieve during the week. Right. And, and in this time in my life, I was probably earning about 30, $35,000 a year, which in New York is not substantial. I was a doctor. I owned a gym. I had an event company. I, I did not feel like the man of the house. And I remember running an event and losing $13,000 on the event despite it being a sellout event. And my wife was carrying our relationship financially and we had saved $15,000 together, most of it hers. And I had to come and tell her, I just lost $13,000. It needs to come out of our bank account. And I went into the kitchen and that's the last time as a grown man that I cried about something that wasn't somebody dying or, or, you know, a, a life event, if you will. It was just, I had met my version of rock bottom. And thankfully my wife supported me through it. She's like, you're my penny stock. I knew who you were when I married you. You'll, you'll, you'll work out. And I got you back. But so I hired a coach who was a member of the gym. And the first thing he took for a thousand dollars a month when I wasn't like, I couldn't afford it, but I couldn't afford not to for a two hour meeting once a month. And the first thing he says is, if you wanna be better at business, you wanna be more successful, you need to become a better person. I was like, I don't know what you mean. Like everything that I do, I treat people the way that I would want to be treated. And he's like, yeah, and that's the problem. Most people don't wanna be treated the way that you do. And that was a, like a, there's light bulbs, and then there's fireworks. Mm. That, that was fireworks in my brain. Mm-hmm. I am not like most people. Most people don't want to be talked to the way I want to be talked to. So he started teaching me how to change the way that I talk to people, how I thought, how to be more patient, how to become a better listener. And we worked together for about nine months. He never taught me about engaging a lead, closing a sale, none of that. And our offers, our price, nothing. And I tripled my income that year, more than tripled my income that year. It was my first year over $100,000 professionally. And I had cut my work in half from 15 hours a day to like nine. So that was a huge deal. I kept on riding that until I went to a mastermind where I had paid $5,000 to sit And I was going to pay another $45,000 to be a part of it. I had the check in my pocket for $45,000. Jesse goes up and speaks as a guest. I rip up the check in my pocket. I'm like, I don't, I don't want to learn from the people I'm here to learn from. I want to learn from that guy because he understands the family, the humanity and the business 
that I want to be able to have. I don't want, I don't just want to be a rich guy. It's not interesting to me. Mm. So don't get me wrong. I want to be rich. I want to be wealthy. And but I don't, yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. Um, and I ended up just stalking Jesse until he had an event at his house that I, I paid and attended. And I was, I remember the event telling him straight up, I was disappointed. The event did not go the way that I thought it was going to go. It was all about myself and my life. It was not about my business. And I thought I was going to learn how to be better at business at this event. And that year I tripled my income again. Mm. And I was like, there's something to this becoming a better person thing. And I sent him a letter and I, I, I let him know all this had changed and I thanked him for it. And now it's, it's, it's the only thing that I focus on personally. My job as the CEO and founder of my company is to create a safe and inspiring work environment for everybody else. The only way to do that is to be an approachable person who wants to understand them more than to, to, to push them. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I resonate with that. And I think personally what I find is you have to have the discipline, especially when you have people around you that are also high performers, but their performance doesn't look like yours in the sense that they really focus on outcomes and work and explicitly uh, explicit outcomes connected to work. Whereas I tend to agree with you. I focus on my internal mechanisms and I know if my internal mechanisms are right and I'm focused on the right things, the business outcomes as well as the family outcomes and other outcomes will happen. And I think it's important for me to hear that too, because sometimes I can look at others that are also high performers. And if I'm not confident in where I'm at, I can get confused. And um, it's really good to hear you say that um, because I, I do resonate with that. So I want to talk about your confidence. So this was something that came through on one of the podcasts that I listened to. And I like that um, story about the charcoal painting on the wall. And can we talk a little bit about that painting and what it is and how it relates to that story of, uh, of confidence? So the charcoal painting is still in commission. It's not done yet, okay. but it's being, it's being done. So the story you're talking about RJ is actually from the first iteration of the event that ended up changing my life that I lost $13,000 on. Um, Hurricane Sandy had just happened October of 2012. And in an hour, I had lost my home, my chiropractic clinic, and my gym business in one fell swoop. And for the next five months, it was all about getting those back up. And in those five months, I was thinking to myself, this will never happen again. This will never happen to me again. This will never happen to me again. I need to figure out a way to be impervious to the climate. Like I can't, I can't lose business because it snowed. Or Hurricane Sandy dropped six feet of water and sludge yeah. in my business. So in doing so, I was like, I, I want to start an event. Because an event, we store our stuff somewhere on high ground, we bring it out and that's it. Like we just, we run this event. And I didn't believe that anybody would come to this event for me. I was a nobody. Like, like who am I? I? I'm not a great athlete in the CrossFit space. I don't have any celebrity patience yet. Who am I? Why would anybody come? I don't have a, I don't have a platform. So my business partner at the time was a well-known CrossFit athlete in a local community. Like, we'll, we'll make him the guy. We'll, we'll just mm -hmm. pretend everything is him. Everyone shows up to the event. We have about 500 athletes who turn out to compete. And he's struggling on the microphone. And everyone is, you can tell it's getting like, oh man, like it's feeling like a snake pit. No one's understanding anything. I have to do something. So I was like, do you want me to speak? He said, yeah, please take the mic. So I take the microphone from him. I start talking and everyone's like, oh, thank you. And 
I'm like, okay, I can, I can talk to these people. I'm walking around. We have grounds that are, I don't even know, probably uh, one square mile, if I had to guess, was about the space that we were occupying for this event. We go to a space where I'm explaining a, a part of the competition and my microphone dies. And I'm like, oh, what? Am... There's 500 athletes and about 1,000, maybe 1,500 other spectators there who are trying to understand what's going on. I am now standing on the beach 12 feet below the top of the boardwalk there are people lined an entire block and they're standing all around me and my microphone just died. What am I going to do? I'm like, I have no choice. So I just dropped the mic and I started yelling. I, I channeled that inner, like you literally coach. dropped the mic. <laughs> yeah. I had no choice. I was like, can you hear me? You know? Yeah. I said, everybody bring it in nice and tight. And I just went into like crisis management mode, which was not, unfamiliar to me. I had done it a few months prior when her. But, but Sean, is that natural to you? Like, do you think that everyone has the ability to sink into that pressure? And do you know I, how you do that? Or is it just natural? It's not natural. Um, I was really fortunate growing up. I had have phenomenal parents who never made anything easier for me than it needed to be uh, despite their means to do so. So I'll never forget in third grade, I didn't like the way my teacher had done something. And I came home and complained to my parents and they said, okay, we'll come in with you tomorrow and we'll stand behind you while you tell the teacher. They never called the school on my behalf and complained on my behalf. You know, uh, I learned how to swim when I was three years old. I live on an island. I learned how to swim when I was three years old uh, because my mom said, throw him in the deep end. And they were like, what if he drowns? She's like, you're a lifeguard and you can stand. He's not going to drown. He's not swimming in the shallow end because he can stand up anytime he wants. Stop making it so easy for him. So I was conditioned from a young age by my parents that you stand up for yourself. You attack the worst case scenario at all times. I have countless stories that I can share like that, where my parents disallowed me to be the victim in my own life, despite my wanting to be. And so it just became exposure after exposure, after exposure, after exposure. And it got easier and easier and easier. Now, the, the flip side to that was I, I grew callous also. I grew that like, look, you're either with me or against me. I don't fucking care. And that's when becoming a better person paid its dividends. It was, no, 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 no. I want you to be with me. Why, why haven't I connected with you? Where have I gone wrong? I was talking to a, a guest, Anthony Trucks, who grew up foster kid, and he then used that chip on his shoulder to become an NFL football player. And we were talking about how do you then shift that chip on your shoulder to come from a more graceful place, mm -hmm. right? Because you can't keep bumping up against everyone in the world. And my view is that chip on the shoulder, you need to, with maturity and time and maybe wisdom and age, start to evolve so that you're coming from a better place, right? A more human-centered place, I guess is what you're saying. Well, it's, it's, you can continue to uh, deny the evolution of yourself for the sake of not having to spend the energy. Or you can decide, I'd rather spend the energy and get what's, what comes from it. And that's, just, that, that's what I decided. Mm. Yeah. So let's talk about pain, not physical pain. Now, I must preface this. I was blown away in your conversation with Joe DeSena. I've had a few conversations with Joe and I know how pedantic he is about certain things. <laughs> you were the first person to successfully challenge him on quitting. Mm -hmm. I have never heard him let anyone off the hook when it comes to, uh, 
you know, the easier way or quitting, but you were able to frame that conversation in a certain way where he relented. Now, one thing you said, which I'm going to paraphrase, you said, you said something to the effect that sometimes we do the stupid thing of continuing with the harder way because we're almost, um, we're almost um, lost the words. Like we're almost dogged in pursuing that route at our own expense. And you almost were able to articulate it in a way where quitting is actually the harder thing, but the right thing to do, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And then conversely, I want to talk about how on the other end of the spectrum, people then do obviously use pain um, within their narrative as a means and an excuse to say, oh, look, Joe, Joe can't do that. He's got a, you know, I've got a, I've got a sore knee or, or whatever. Can we just talk about pain, not so much on the physical sense, but more so on the psychological? Yeah. And, and I think that it's directly tied into the quitting that you're describing. When I was growing up, there were two words in the house that had four letters that I wasn't allowed to use. Can't and hate. That's it. Right? Like that, and, and it's the same for my kids. Can't and hate. Um, the reason for that is there's always a way. And the mistake that I think people make when they do things like the ultras that Joe does, like really hard workouts, like Navy SEAL training when you're not trying to get into the Navy SEALs. All that stuff has a, a value and a purpose. You need to preserve that purpose when you do it. And I like to say tough people make tough decisions. They don't do hard things physically. You know, when you're working, I had to learn how to do this when I was working with elite athletes, whose job it was for me to keep them from getting hurt. You know, the most, the most valuable ability of any athlete is availability. And so my job is to make sure they still had that. And part of that was to say, when you get peer pressured into doing that stupid thing, you just say, no, you're not going to do it because it doesn't align with your intent for getting into it in the first place. And that is where um, I think the pain comes in, RJ, because that's a painful, really short phrase just to say no. That's painful because at risk is what will people think of me? What will my reputation become? What will I think of myself? Is it a slippery slope to becoming a quitter all the time and just always taking the easy road? What does this actually mean? What am I deciding about right now? And being able to steep yourself in the pain of that decision because it is the right thing to do in the short term, even if it hurts for the intent that you were doing the thing for the long term. I'm an ultra runner, and I know that most of us in the world of ultra start off to psychologically and emotionally challenge ourselves. And then for some of those, some of us that become performance orientated, it shifts slow. So when I came into the world of ultra, it was more so a crucible and I got good and I'm fast. I'm naturally climatized to running and it became more performance orientated. But I would say you framed it in a very unique way in the sense that when you're talking about people that are used to, and they built a narrative and an identity on being a badass that never stops, it's actually the harder thing to do is to actually stop and be like, well, this is actually a training run. Cause I get lost in that too. Like a training run becomes life or death for me. And I forget and I lose the bigger picture. I lose the fact that I'm running a business. I'm a father. I've got to, you know, like I just, I get so caught up in that, in that crucible that I lose perspective. And it's interesting that you brought up, we talk about the subject of running, like Adharand, I, I pronounce his name incorrectly, Adharand Finn. 
he's written multiple books on runners and he's written book where he lived with Kenyans in Iten. And then his second book was the rise of ultra. I think it was his second book where he started following the ultra endurance community. And there was an interesting piece in there where they brought a Kenyan runner to try to do an ultra and he was killing it. And then the moment he started to experience physical pain around like kilometer 48 or 49, he quit and they were trying to get him to run. And they're like, you're going to experience pain. This is an ultra. And he goes, no. And they couldn't understand why he quit. And then you probably know where I'm going with this later on. They were upon reflecting, they realized that this is an elite runner that runs marathons because he has to, and he's performance orientated. And now he's running an ultra and he's starting to experience pain and he's realizing, well, he's doing a cost benefit analysis. Now I could push myself through this and potentially fuck my leg up and my career, or I can stop because it doesn't make sense to continue. Right. Yeah. And it's the, it's the, it's, it's the fear and the pain in the moment that he was able to overcome because the person who continues to run there is potentially doing it to prove them to themselves, but oftentimes doing it so that everybody else will be like, wow, I want to be inspired by that person. I want to be able to do what that person did look at how they said they were going to do that. And they followed through on it. And I'm all about making, pro- I think confidence is built by making promises and keeping them, you know, make a promise to yourself, keep the promise. Every time you do that, confidence builds. One of the promises that that guy made to himself was, I will stop the moment that the cost outweighs the benefit. And he got to that spot and that promise outweighed the underlying promise of I'll finish this race. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Like I've had to reflect on, you know, I told myself a long time ago, I will never get a do not, did not finish. But if I was a ultra runner by career, I understand. And I think it's also why you're doing something right. And in terms of what the outcomes are. So really interesting stuff. We're going to move on to this concept, um, more self personal development. I love this concept of intentional self-auditing. What is that, Sean? Unpack this for us. It's, it's putting yourself out of business over and over and over again, personally. You know, it's what would the better version of me do to make the current version of me obsolete? Well, instead of, instead of waiting for a better version of me to come along and make me obsolete, I'm just going to become that person. So it's, it's checking in with the important people in your life to make sure that you're bringing them more value than you're costing them. It's checking in with the, you know, your, your view of yourself and making sure that you're still in alignment with things that drive you. You know, I, I used to um, understand why people would hate Monday. You know, I hate, I hate Monday, Monday. Like when you're in college, Monday sucks. It just does. Uh, but when you're in your career, when you're in your 30s and your 40s, Monday shouldn't suck. You've had time to start making decisions that make Monday a day to look forward to. What's going wrong if, if you're not enjoying Monday? And for me, it all comes down to promises made, promises kept. I'm going to be the best version of myself. And what does a successful day look like? So for example, you know, pre-COVID, and I need to revisit this, full disclosure, I need to revisit it. Pre-COVID, the perfect day was I'm home at 5.30, walking on the boardwalk by the beach in our town with my wife and our kids. And I'm thinking about walking on the beach with my wife and my kids. That's it. That's a successful day. What must happen for me to get to that? I need to accomplish the goals for the day. I need to know that the things I didn't finish are in process of being finished because my brain likes to check boxes. It likes to say, this is done. So 
you can go about that one of two ways. I'm going to try to convince myself that checking boxes is unimportant or I can design better boxes to check and have a metric of success that requires all of those boxes to be checked in order for me to live the life that I said I want to live. And that when I look back at it, I do want to live. So it's, to me, it's as simple as that. And I have a, a personal mission statement that I read every morning before I do anything. And if it doesn't make me emotional, if it doesn't give me goosebumps, I change it. Change one word of it, change the tense, change, change anything to, to make it better match what my actual desires are so that I can constantly be pointing myself towards them. Mm. Uh, the conversation that we initially had really went to family and being a husband and being a better man. And um, it's something that I want to talk to you about. There was a theme in your previous podcast around sharing your vision. Now you meant it more in the business context, but I then tied that into this concept of really over communicating, which you talked about as well, which I believe wholeheartedly. And so I think those two really go together irrespective of whether it's your partner or your business, it's, you know, over communicating, sharing your vision to me, it's kind of one and the same. And I then, you know, I was listening to this podcast you did with your wife, which was amazing. I think you guys, your electricity shat itself and you guys had nothing to do. So you interviewed her about postpartum uh, depression and issues uh, that she had after your, your, your child's birth. And so I just want to, to, to talk to you a little bit more about your philosophy on your relationship with your wife and kind of communication over communicating, sharing your vision. Um, you know, you've, you've included her in a lot of dialogue uh, about your journey in, in a very thoughtful way. Uh, there was a piece there where your wife felt she wasn't contributing. I think you guys decided to pay off her student loans and you said to her, no, you are like, we're a fucking team. And I really like that. And I really value that because I think that, you know, I too have a wife that sometimes questions the value she brings when she's working her ass off at home with two kids, which is fucking hard work, man. I'm there for like an hour. I'm like, fuck, let me get back to the office. You know what I'm saying? It's like fucking head spinning, right? So can you just, let's talk about your relationship, bro. Like, and how do you keep it the way it is, you know? My wife is the most important person in my life. And the reason for that is because I, I see her as an irreplaceable person in my life. She makes me better at everything that I do. What would happen if she wasn't in my life? I, I, I'm confident I would I'd figure something out. But the fact that I don't have to, because she is brings so much value to everybody active life touches because it allows me to stay focused on what I'm supposed to do at work. Now, there was a time, like, yeah, it was wild to me that she felt like she wasn't contributing because she, she has a robust career of her own that she's retiring from, by the way, in June. But the fact that she hadn't considered that the work that she was doing all of those years allowed me the latitude to build this with less risk, less fear, never crossed my mind until she said it. And to me, I believe that if that relationship is good, if the relationship, if you're married, if the relationship with your significant other is good, it just, you start the day different every day. I'll never forget uh, going to one of my friend's bachelor parties. And we weren't allowed to tell his fiance that we were going to a strip club. Oh God. Which was weird. <laughs> I was like, this, this, this is weird. Uh, my future wife, then girlfriend, dropped us off <laughs> and picked us up. You know, she she puts me in check. She holds me up. She makes sure everybody knows how great she thinks I am. 
And her belief in me helps me believe in myself. So to me, the big vision that we need to be talking about is our life. And then the smaller vision is how the company fits into that vision. I've had numerous partnerships break down. And every time the partnership broke down, there was a common threat. I did a poor job communicating my vision for where we could take the partnership. And so when I would start to do things in the direction that I thought was important, it would be at odds with the way that my partner wanted to move at the same time. And we never understood each other because we never discussed clearly where do we want to go and what are we willing to do to get there? There's a lot of assumptions, right, made. Of course. What do you mean you don't want to scale the company? Mm. Well, like the first time someone said that to me, I'm like, <laughs> mind it blown. Never, it <laughs> never, it never occurred to me. I'm like, you want, you thought it was just going to be the two of us forever? <laughs> what are you talking about? I don't even like doing this. I like helping <laughs> other people do it. You know, so it, it was like, I'm, I'm doing it now to prove that it works, but I don't like building widgets. Yeah. Yeah. Someone yeah. else likes building widgets. Yeah. I'm going to help them do it. Yeah. So um, with my wife, Kimberly, it's, it's, we talk about what we want to do all the time. Recently it was, you know, we'd really like that house that's two and a half blocks away and three times as expensive as our house. I don't really feel like doing that right now because it's doesn't, we're in this, this transition point in the company. It's just not, I don't feel as stable as maybe she thinks I yeah. feel. Yeah. So there, it's your, okay. it's your confidence, bro. You got to, people are reading your confidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, but so, so we're redoing the house we live in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, look, that, why? Because we want to feel good every day when we wake up. Yeah. So we're going to, we're going to make a house that we feel good waking up in. I totally share your sentiments, bro. Um, I would add one of the things I love about my wife, which probably used to annoy me, you know, like I had to learn in this relationship how to be with someone i'm a recovering addict and um you know i had dysfunctional relationships for my whole life and this is probably my first healthy relationship so there's a lot of maturity learning to share myself my space my time my hopes my dreams my wishes and as a typical american um especially in australia i i I'm, i take myself very seriously americans we take ourselves very seriously sometimes and one of the things i love about my wife is she doesn't take me all too seriously. Like, you know, like she doesn't drink the Kool-Aid, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, I might come home thinking I'm a fucking superstar and she's like, you know, like, you know how that goes, bro. So like, it just kind of brings you to earth, right? Yes. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll, I'll come home. So, so right now, one of the things that I am working my ass off on is creating an environment in the United States and Canada where health insurance companies will pay professional fitness trainers to provide services to their clients, right. which is, which is like, I mean, you want to talk about a cataclysmic shift in the mm -hmm. way that, that healthcare and fitness are looked at that, that would be it. Um, and I'll come home after making what I think is like, like, I mean, you're talking pound the chest. Like I am the man today. I come home and my wife is like, we need dinner. So I need you to cook. I need you to cook that sun basket and Camden has shit in her diaper. Please oh. change it. I'm going to take care of this. And I'm like, oh. yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> or or I, lo I loaded the dishwasher incorrectly. Can yes. you, can you reload it or some shit? Yeah. And, and it's not that she doesn't celebrate my success because she celebrates my success. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, yeah, that's great. Like save healthcare, babe. In the meantime, can you change that diaper? hundred percent, bro. I think, I think, um, some of us need that in our lives, you know, and well, definitely. It, mm. If I, if I can speak to that a little bit deeper, uh, mm. recently my, my wife and I did for the second time. And I recommend this to anybody who's married, who's in a good yeah. relationship. We hired a relationship coach yeah. and we didn't wait until things were bad to do it because we're more open to criticism and, and change when things were good. And this, the most recent one that we hired, her name is Lex Martinez on Instagram at that sex chick. Um, 
she taught us how to be really, really, really vulnerable with each other. And I'd never been that way with anybody in my life, including my wife. And in doing so, everything got better. Yeah. It was like, I didn't have to hide anything from anybody at home anymore. Yeah. Down to like the, I think I might like it if you did this in the bedroom. Yeah. I've been ashamed to ask you to do yeah. this. Why, why have I been ashamed to ask you to do this? And I'm just so grateful that I have a woman at home who is open to growing with me. Mm. Oh yeah. Totally on board with that. We, we've done the same thing. Tilly and I went and saw, uh, so proactively because we didn't want, we just wanted to be proactive and keep our foot on the pedal. Right. Like, and, and really we have such different styles of communicating There's cultural elements too, Sean, like Australians are very different, you know, they're even their tonality is different. So she could say things that I'm thinking she's complaining, but they have inflection. It's just, there's a real subtleties in even the communication style and cultural style, which created lots of teething issues and, and we needed uh, to be proactive. And, and yeah, I think having that external party uh, for relationships that are good, you just go strength to strength. Right. So instead of waiting for, to, to, to go to shit, it's this whole preventative care. It's like going to the PT, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Well, it, you know, you know what I, I actually, I'd push back on the preventative care thing a little bit. And, and I think that this will be helpful for people to think about. It's preventative from a symptomatic perspective. It's not preventative from a dysfunction perspective. We are functioning less than optimally in areas of our life. And having somebody point those dysfunctions out to us and help us improve on them prevents us from having so much dysfunction that we experience symptoms. Mm we already have dysfunction or there would be nothing to improve. And, and so that's what we do in the fitness space. And it's what I look for coaches to do with me in the business space and in the life space. I don't think I'll ever be without a mentor again, because there's always a dysfunction that can be improved. Let's talk about that. That's actually the next topic. And your quote unquote, start, start when we're talking about mentorship, start within your fishbowl and then move out. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. Uh, this, this goes to the um, imposter phenomenon that people experience. It used to be called imposter syndrome. Now they call it imposter phenomenon. There's a right person for you in each stage of your life and of your career. And they're not necessarily the same person. So the person who coached me to become a better person when I was really lost in life and business would not be the best person to coach me now through what we're trying to do with scaling the company. Mm-hmm. Definitely would have been the wrong person to help me with my love and sex life with my wife. But so it's, there's nothing wrong with, in fact, there is something wrong with trying to stay with the same person forever if they're no longer providing the return for you that it was intended to provide, things come to an end. So the way I think about it is squeeze all of the, be as selfish as you possibly can. Squeeze all of the juice out of every opportunity that's in front of you. And when the juice stops flowing, look for a new tree to squeeze juice from. And a really good mentor, a really good coach will recognize and agree that there's no more juice to be Mm. squeezed here. And they'll ask you to move on before you even do it. Mm. So that first coach actually fired me. He was like, look, at this point, it's going to be diminishing returns. You need somebody different. I think the, I think the relationship changes as well. I mean, even in sponsorship and Alcoholics Anonymous, I've had sponsees that I've let go. And they get all personal about it because there's this codependence that evolves mm-hmm. and you just know when they're no longer, first of all, the relationship becomes more like a friend There's a lack of accountability, but the solutions they need and where they need to move and groove, you're not necessarily focused on that particular arena. And I think it takes a lot of wisdom and maturity on both ends. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the hard thing on the person 
if you are the mentor, because I've been both the mentor and the mentee. The hard thing as the mentor is to recognize and to, to, to be at peace with. I can no longer bring this person the kind of value that somebody else could bring them. And there is some identity attached to somebody else's success when you've helped them achieve it. I've helped people go from, you know, making $25,000 a year to making $150,000 a year. And then I'm like, you know what? At this point, we're at different levels of what would happen next, but you kind of need the same coach that I'm working with, which means you don't need me. And then the, the child inside is like, but when that person becomes really famous and really successful, the credit won't go to me even though it's not about you, right? And as the um, mentee, the difficult thing is the opposite. It's this person helped me go from where I was to where I am. I'm not getting anything out of them anymore, but I feel like it's like, like I'm dishonoring them or like I'm betraying them to leave and go work with somebody else. And I just think that if both sides of the, operation are mature enough to understand that it's not about them that that stuff goes away yeah yeah no definitely i mean i had recently a guy who i've known for years he always comes to me when he's got burning bush moments and they're generally around relationships because he has an inability to have healthy relationships and he kind of wants what i have but the guy that he is mentoring him is single (laughs) running around having the time of his life kind of, Mm. you know, sleeping around, whatever, nothing, no problem with that. But like, if this is an area that you need to work on and when I call him out on it, he goes ghost. Cause I'm like, dude, quit calling me when you have a fucking problem. Like if you really want to do this, we need to get in early. I don't want to be your fucking 24, 23rd hour psychologist, right? Like if this is an area of your life, you really want to shine a light on, stop hiding from it and let's actually get to work. Right. Because yeah, I mean, I think I think you're you're 100 right. Like we then we evolve. There's new areas we need to focus on, and and people have particular areas of strength and focus, right? Well, it, it's it's I don't want to keep fixing the pothole. I want to replace yeah. the street. Yeah, that's and, exactly. and and to do that, we need a plan, and we're going to need to look at areas of your life that right now you're not considering because you don't understand how they play into this problem, and. I might, I might not, but let's have the conversation about it. Yeah. What happens is I think people, they have blind, they have blind sides in a particular area. They lack the illustrative examples and that's all we're doing as mentors, right? We have the illustrative examples and that particular component that we're focusing on the runs on the board, the illustrative examples, pattern recognition as well. I think there's a lot of that, like, you know, as a partner with your wife, like there's there's a lot in being a good partner. And a lot of that is also really coming into flow with uh, your relationship, the patterns within your relationship and being able to kind of see how that plays out. And I find that's kind of what's helped me with other men that are in relationships as well is kind of recognizing what's playing out in my own relationship in what they're going through. Right. So, yeah, It, it can become problematic socially. You know, when I go, I love being a dad and I love being a husband and I hate going to my kids' events because I don't want to hear other parents complain about their life, about being parents, about being husbands. I'm like, yo, go talk to somebody about this and fix it. It's not, I'm not, I'm not going to commiserate with you. And I've, I've had these conversations with people where I've, I, I remember once vividly going to my daughter's daddy-daughter dance. And this dad comes over and he's like, oh man, when does this thing end? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, he's like, oh, he's like I hate, can't stand doing this stuff. Long day at work. My wife yells at me. I got to take my daughter to this thing. And, and he's like, you know what I mean? And I was like, honestly, man, no, I don't. I'm like, I, I left work early today so that I could come to this thing because it's been on my calendar for a month and I've been looking forward to it. And 
my wife is home with the kids. And when I get home tonight, I'm probably going to have sex with her. <laughs> he didn't love I was that. Like, no, well, I, I, he, he was, he was taken back. And I was like, I, I don't relate. Hmm. I'm sorry. And, and, that, and that's part of the chip that we talked about earlier. I, I probably didn't need to go there. No, but, but you know what though? You might be helping him out because you, you might be shocking him to the extent like, wow, okay, there is a better way. You, yeah, you polarize uh, the view. You polarized. Yes, on the way home, I regretted the way I said it because I, I, I realized that I said it that way because it felt good to me, not because it was beneficial to him. Fair enough. Uh, but maybe it does, you know, in, in hindsight, I would have said, look, I don't really, I don't, I don't share that experience. I hope that you, I hope that you can improve that. That would be something that I would say now, but I was, I was still growing. I get that, Sean, like, and probably, um, you know, that's why I don't hang out with groups of men. Mm -hmm. I don't hang out with men. I don't, I actually don't hang out with a lot of people, but I find I need to be very careful with large groups of males and men, because what ends up happening is that level of negativity can permeate through the group. And I just need to protect my psychology. And, you know, it's not like I avoid groups of men, but I I'm very aware of that type of uh, think. Yeah. I'm so, look, I'm, so, I'm selective, not exclusive about who I hang out with. Yeah. Well, anyways, Sean, I think we'll wrap it up there, man. It's been really, really uh, great hanging out, having this conversation. I hope you enjoyed yourself. Really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, it's been a great show. A lot of insights, not only within the industry of, of fitness, but just into your ethos, your philosophy, your psychology. And again, we thank you here from Ultra Habits, man. RJ, I really enjoyed this style of conversation. It was fun to jump around and dive deep into the little thoughts and behaviors. No, I really appreciate it, man. And where can we find you, bro? Where can the listeners find you? Uh, on LinkedIn, they can find me at uh, Sean Pastuch. And if they're an Instagram crowd, at Dr. Sean Pastuch on Instagram. All right, brother. Look, all the best. You enjoy your evening. Thank you, RJ. You too.